story. We've been coming to church for a while, you know, like very few people have been coming to church for years and years. And saying, like, what? It's ending the beginning. But we have to know the story behind the story, and that's what I want us to look at. So we're going to back up and we're going to see the whole picture here. And I'm going to have some help here this morning in just a few minutes as well. Uh, you know, God, God created in the very beginning, He created this garden, the garden of Eden. Perfection, no problems, no sin whatsoever. There was harmony in people relating to God and to each other. Uh, and then, of course, sin enters the world from Adam and Eve. And the grave effects of sin take over. And as they take over, that's where we see fear and shame, death and isolation and devastation that comes where this sin is marked all of the end. And a holy God can no longer connect intimately and closely with an unholy group of people. And so, God sees to pursue these rebellious people who are full of sin and wondering how does a holy God react with a group of holy and unholy people? Those chosen people, the Israelites, would be different. They were supposed to be different and set apart for his purposes, but they continue to sin and they're kicked off into slavery. So God devises this rescue and redemption plan among them, and they would be led by an unqualified person by the name of Moses. God speaks with Moses and leads the people out of Egypt towards the promised land. But people were continually rebellious and were punished for their sin. And part of God's rescue plan, again, allowed for this thing that we see here, a tent, this tabernacle. Next slide. Right in the middle of the wilderness. So God wanted, this holy God wanted to connect with this unholy group of people. And he actually very specifically told people exactly how he wanted the tent arranged and the different objects that were around it. He lived among them. And God would live among them in this temp, tent as they camped around the area that God would make Himself known in the tent by residing in a cloud in a golden box inside of this tent. And that was how the people would know God's presence. They would see the smoke rising up from this tent. And that place called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place was in there. And very few people ever got a chance to go inside of it. This is where only the high priest would enter God's presence and would only do it one day a year on something called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the high priest could enter that Holy of Holies but had to confess his sins, wash himself with a special bath, and where he had to wear holy underwear. I'm not making this up that God actually very clearly said exactly what they were to wear, what they were to do, how they were to prepare to go in there, and hoping that God and His holiness wouldn't strike this high priest dead as he confessed the sins of all of Egypt. And then we get to the book of Numbers, and we find something very interesting in the book of Numbers. The Israelites spent a year at Mount Sinai where God had given Moses these Ten Commandments. It wasn't just one time, it was a whole year that they were camped out at the base of Mount Sinai in this tent and, and living around, around the tent that God had set up. And God will be among them, but He cannot be close to them because the unholy people will die in the presence of a holy God. And so God has very specific instructions of how the people are to set up the camp. So in the middle would be the tent, and around them would, would be how He wanted them arranged very specifically. But not only the tent of how they would be arranged, all of the people, but then when they got up and they would march and they would move around the wilderness, God actually said, this group of people will go first, and then this group of people, and then this will be, and then 
He actually commanded how they were to walk. And it brings organization and structure to all of these people in the wilderness. How they ate, what they ate, when they worked and rested, how they dealt with conflict, even how they were to relieve themselves. God commands all of that to happen. And in the middle of the tent of the meeting, the place where God's presence would be, remember God cares about holiness. So anyone who goes in who is not a Levite, that is a priest, would die. And so you see this arrangement here of where they had to camp around the area. God takes holiness very, very seriously. And unholy people cannot approach holy God. And God actually tells them this is how they're to arrange themselves. Okay? It's no small thing, by the way, because we're told that altogether, in Numbers, the first few chapters of Numbers was a census. That's where we get the name of the book, Numbers. There's a whole bunch of numbers of the different tribes and how they were arranged. And then we're told that in the census that it revealed that there were over 600,000 Israelite men that were accounted for. Meaning, there were probably a total of 2 million Israelites, men, women, and children wandering through the wilderness, camped in this arrangement that God specifically told them where and how they were. But the most important thing is that the tent would be at the center of all of these two million people. Numbers 2, 2 says that the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting at some distance from it. You cannot get too close or you would risk death. So outside the camp would be Moses and the priests with the sons of Merari, Gershon, and Kohath. So you see that, where the tabernacle is, and you see where they're arranged, and the numbers of all of them. In addition to that, they would be the closest of the Israelites, but they would still have a considerable distance away. Didn't want to get too close, you might die. And of the twelve tribes, it would be divided into quarters, three tribes in each direction, east, west, north, and south. You see very specifically how they were arranged, these two million people, how they were to camp. Not scattered everywhere, but with great organization. And each quarter section would have a tribe, kind of a captain of the team, and then that tribe would have a standard banner, which would designate which part you were. I mean, if you got lost, how would you know where you're supposed to camp? You'd find the banner, and that's where you would know where you would be and where you would stand and where you'd camp. Four groups of people of Israel organized carefully around the centerpiece of the community, the tabernacle, which is where God's presence resided with smoke rising up when God's presence was there. This is how they were to camp. But when the Lord moves them and they were to travel through the wilderness, they actually were to march in a particular order too. God's presence would be among them. So they're marching through. Everybody Break down your tents, break down your things, grab your stuff, and they would actually have to march in this rotation. And you can see that at the beginning was the Ark of the Covenant, the box where God's presence would reside. In the middle, they were carrying the tabernacle, the actual tent, and then there were tabernacle furnishings, the, the things used to make sure that worship was happening of this God and His presence, that God was in the center of His people even while they walked for miles and miles through the wilderness itself. This was like a travel formation, a sacred caravan with each of the 12 tribes carrying these banners, each of the four larger groups having a standard banner as they would go and walk forward. So you see as Mary's painting, 
showing us that effect of how they would camp around this important place of God's presence. So what happens when the people of Israel sinned? What do we do then? Well, Leviticus tells us, it goes into amazing detail of God commanding what they were to do when they sinned. To bring in rams and oxen and sheep. And the Levites, these priests, were to slaughter the animals. I'm sure Peter would not be happy with that, to hear that. But they would slaughter these animals. Specific instructions of what to do with each particular animal. Even what to do with the particular body parts of each animal. Several times in Leviticus, God gives commandments of even what to do with the long lobe of the cow's liver. I mean, down to that particular detail because holiness matters. Holiness is important. And God has a specific way of saying, I want to interact with you, but you got to keep your distance. I want to be with you, but your sin separates you from me because I'm a holy God. And that was the job of the Levites, night and day, to butcher animals because when sin was committed, life is required. When sin is committed, life is required. It was very bloody. It was very gory for these Levites. At the end of each day, the priests, they'd be completely covered in blood like you would if you were at a butcher shop. Just completely soaked in blood. Now, why would God command the people to do something so dramatic? Isn't it no big, you know, no big deal. Don't worry about it. But what's behind all this blood and this loss of life? And God wanted the people to know down to their being, their core being, the seriousness of sin and to show that something has to die when sin occurs. Every time sin occurs, something has to die. And at the center of these people was the tangible expression of the cosmic rescue and redemption plan where a holy God received sacrifices of blood from animals on behalf of unholy people. And it was right at the heart of the whole community. It wasn't on the edges. It was the very center of the life of the community that your sin matters. And when sin is committed, you're required to bring an animal to the priest in the center of your life and your clan and your family. And this happens over and over and over again. And when you've sinned, you might say, ah, yesterday I had to sacrifice two of my best lambs because of the way I treated my wife and because I lied to Yitzhak. And I just did it again. And i got to go back with another lamb now, and i got to do it again. And you might think this is getting expensive. This is getting repetitive. This is taking lots of time to do it this way. Now, let's jump ahead several hundred years from the wilderness in Egypt to the great city of Jerusalem. Keeping this in mind. Now, God commanded that a temple be built at this point a more permanent structure, a magnificent building. Instead of it moving around the wilderness with them in a tent, it stayed right there. And this is a model uh, of what it would look like based on um, what it's described and also archaeological records. It was magnificent. It was huge. People all around the world in the, in the ancient times would say this is one of the crown jewel architectural feats that ever existed. It was bigger and more permanent than the tabernacle concept. And the temple was God's tangible presence with His people. This was the zip code of God. Right here. 
You wanted to meet God, you had to come to this particular area in Jerusalem on the hill called Mount Zion. And several times a year, God's people scattered all over Israel would travel for several days in caravans with friends and neighbors from all the villages all over the region. And they would come to worship at the temple. And every day in the courtyard of the temple, thousands of animals were still being sacrificed, still going lots of blood, lots of sacrifice. And here also was a clear arrangement of people. Who would be allowed to be where, how they would be structured, very specific plans. But it wasn't in terms of tribes, east, south, north, west. Instead, it was about men and women and Jews and Gentiles and priests and high priests and where they could go. And they all had places where they could go and they certainly had places where they could not go, where they were not allowed. Now, one thing was clear, even though there's differences of wandering in the wilderness with a tent called a tabernacle and being in a permanent majestic building in Jerusalem called a temple, one thing still remained the same. You must keep your distance. Because the holy God can't stand unholy people and their sin. You come too close and you will die because of God's holiness. Clear demarcations of space, of keeping distance. Over and over again, sacrifices at a distance, sacrifices at a distance, sacrifices at a distance. Now, people were probably thinking as they returned time after time after time to sacrifice for sin in the temple in Jerusalem, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a more efficient way. This is going on and on and on and on, and we still keep doing this over and over again. And so God ramps up his rescue plan. And it won't just be a tent called the tabernacle, and it won't be a permanent building called the temple. Instead, he chooses to send a person to be in the flesh so that he can touch people and see people and heal people and and interact with the people that he loves. And while he's been at a distance with a tent and a building, now he wants to be up close with us. And the way you do that up close is through a real human relationship. And so God comes to earth in the form of a baby, this human being who grows up to be among people close enough to touch them. So now instead of God having a zip code, God now has a name. And his name is Jesus. And in John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, by the way, here's the cool thing. When he says he dwelt among us, do you know what the word in the original language is? It actually reads like this. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He didn't have a canvas tent. He had skin on. And where the community went, he traveled with them. He tabernacled among them. And then a little bit later in John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. Another translation says this, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. Is near to the Father's heart. Another translation, Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. He was in the bosom of the Father. So this is how God wants to pursue his people. He opens up his chest cavity and a person walks out. And that person was Jesus who was close to God's heart, who opened up his chest cavity, 
and a person walks out. Now, you remember the ancient sacrifice of the lambs and the rams and the sheep and all these other animals. And Jesus, of course, describes, uh, this is described by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And by the way, he spread out his arms in love to die a death of our sin, though he himself had no sin. So at the center of the community of the tabernacle, sin was offered. Sin offerings were offered for forgiveness. Now, at the very center of a very body was the tangible expression of this cosmic rescue and redemption plan where holy God received a sacrifice of blood, not from animals, but from Jesus. In place of an unholy people, right in the heart of his body. At the very end of Jesus' life, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And we have to ask a very important question right about now. What is finished? What is finished? What is the it? Is it Jesus' life? Well, what is, what is the it? Well, when a Greek prisoner was put in prison... Guards would nail a document called a certificate of debt to the outside of the prison cell door. And anyone, anyone could walk by and see what was listed there in terms of not only the crime, but the length of the sentence. Anybody could walk by and see it. And when they had served the length of their sentence, the door would be opened and they would be released. But upon their release, they would be handed a piece of paper. They'd be handed that piece of paper, the certificate of debt that was hanging on the outside of the prison cell, and it would have a word written across the front of it. It was just one word, nice and bold, right across that certificate, and it was the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. In fact, let's say that together. Let me hear you say tetelestai. Tetelestai. This was written in bold across the certificate of debt. And it meant, paid in full, no longer a prisoner, you are now a free man. And that, that former prisoner, now free man, would carry this document around with him. And if people questioned him, they said, whoa, 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 what, what are you doing out? Are you supposed to be out? Did you escape? He'd just hold up his piece of paper and say, keep calm, man, and to tell us die on. I'm out. I'm good, dude. I am free. I'm free. To tell us die. And they go, okay. By the way, what were the last words of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. By the way, do you know what he said? To Tetelestai. He said, Tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full. Your debt is gone. You're free. That's what is finished. Not his life, but your certificate of debt. To tell us die. Paid in full. We are free people. And that's the good news. No more sacrifices. No more going to the priest. No more lambs. No more rams. No more other animals. It is finished. To tell us die. No single word could ever mean so much to us on Easter than the word to tell us die. It is finished. 
Colossians 2 says this, He forgave us of our sins, having canceled the written code, your certificate of debt, with its regulations that was against us, stood opposed to it, and He took it away by nailing it to the cross. That written code was your certificate of debt. It was once nailed to the outside of your prison cell door, and now it's nailed to someone else's cross. And right after he said these words, the big curtain that separated the holy, holy of holies from the rest of the temple, what separated a holy God from an unholy people, ripped from top to bottom. So in Numbers, when God is giving what they can and can't do with the tabernacle, he says, anyone who approaches the sanctuary is to be put to death. Keep your distance. But then in Ephesians, he says this, but now in Christ Jesus You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Keep your distance, and now, no, 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 come close. Come close. The curtain's been ripped. Come close. This arrangement of the tribes to interact with God by keeping their distance and having a sacrifice for sin each and every time was covered over by the person of Jesus on the cross. The way that men and women and Jews and Gentiles and priests and high priests were separated in arrangement from God at the temple, Jesus says, no more, no, 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 you can come close now because the curtain is now ripped. And that's what we celebrate today because He was close to the heart of the Father. He was close to us in human form and He made the sacrifice once and for all on our behalf. And what we celebrate today on Easter, of course, is the fact that he didn't stay dead. He didn't simply hang on a cross forever. He didn't stay in a tomb forever. The curtain, the Holy of Holies, has been closed off, and then it's ripped open, and Jesus shouted to Telestai. And there was something else that was closed that is now open. And it wasn't a curtain in front of the Holy of Holies. This time it was a stone rolled away next to an empty tomb. In Luke 24, It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. An unripped curtain would mean that we still have to keep our distance from a holy God, which would leave us full of fear and without freedom. And a stone that was not rolled away would signify that the tomb was not empty, and that all that Jesus talked about was a total lie, maybe well-intentioned, but he couldn't do it. But fortunately, it was rolled away, and it was empty. And because the curtain is ripped and the tomb is empty, we celebrate a holy God who continued and continues to this day to pursue us. A holy God who pursued and came upon us to rescue us through the person of Jesus. And a God who rips curtains and rolls stones away gives us access so that the God, because the God of hope is still alive. And this is grace. And by the way, when we talk about grace, we have to remember three things. We have to remember how free it is. 
We have to remember how much we're loved, and we have to remember how much it costs. All three of those are really important. And I can think of all of us, knowing many of our stories and who we are, I could think that this story, many of us have heard it over and over again. We can probably fall into two different camps. And the first one is, you know what, I, I, just, I just don't think my sin is that big a deal, right? I mean, Jesus is going to forgive me, right? I mean, everyone's done it, right? Is the system kind of stacked against me when I can't not sin? But here's what we have to remember. When sin is committed, death is the penalty. Something, someone has to die when sin occurs. There's never been a time where a sin was committed and and God said, you know what, it's no big deal, don't worry about it, I won't tell. A sacrifice has to happen when sin is committed. Your sin is grievous. And so for those of us here this morning that go, ah, you know, Easter's cool, tomb is empty, you know, another day, another year. But maybe we need to feel the weight of our own sin. That, that the reason why blood is required is because someone has to die for that kind of blood to be spilled. Or maybe those of you on the other side that sometimes think that your sin is too much. And I've heard people, and maybe many of you, that say, well, you just don't know what I've been through. I mean, I haven't told anybody. These are my secrets. Like, if you knew what was going on, I'm not sure Jesus would. And you're right, I, I don't know. But I'm grateful that he does know. And Jesus still says, I'm still willing to pay a sacrifice of death on your behalf. And if this is what you feel, I want to encourage you with this. That the curtain has been ripped. There is access A stone has been rolled away. No body has been found. He was raised from the dead. The old sacrificial system of continual sacrifices of animals from a distance that was at the center of the nation of Israel has been replaced, completed by the new sacrificial that was painted over the old one to be able to say, to telestai, to telestai over your life. And that important word is written over your life no matter what you've done, no matter what we've done. You are no longer a prisoner. You no longer have a debt to pay. You have papers. You have papers, people. Every one of us has papers. And fortunately, every one of those papers, if we stepped across the line of faith and wanting to enter into this belief in this kind of Jesus, it says in big, bold, red letters across the front, to tell us that. And the bad news is this. The bad news is this, that someone, something has to die for your sin. The good news is someone did die once and for all, and because of his love for you, no more sacrifices at a distance. And the better news is that the tomb is empty. He is risen. You don't have to stay back at a distance. He is now close to you, right among you, right here, forgiving you, pursuing you, loving you, redeeming, and rescuing you. To tell us, die, it is finished because the tomb is empty. We are free. And here's the deal. The evil one loves to do this. To say, oh yeah, in this gym, Easter morning, yeah, to tell us die. And you walk out of here in this afternoon or sometime this week or Tuesday afternoon, you're in a meeting and the evil one just wants to be able to say to you, you know what, I, yeah, you're just, you, you got you to pay off this debt. Don't forget what your papers say. Your papers say to tell us die. So when people say, what are you doing out of prison? Hey, what are you doing? Well, you're not out. You haven't paid your debt yet. You go, dude, yo. To tell us that. To tell us that. I'm free. I'm free.
So how do we respond to something like that? I can think of three ways that we can respond to that reality. The first one is to remember. I mean, so much of what we do, we forget, right? We have to remember. And we remember the price that's been paid by someone else, even though it should have been us. And when we remember that that certificate of debt was paid for and it wasn't paid because of what we've done, we respond in the way most prisoners would respond in that situation of just deep gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then the last one is we would do what's, what inmates would do when they're released from prison, and that's where we would celebrate. Because that's what we do when we're free. Now, this is really cool. This morning, Lydia was here earlier. Lydia Hoover, and she was helping put the communion bread together up here. And we got lots of bread under here, by the way. And as we're putting it together, she looked at me and she said, we get to feast today, don't we? I said, you bet we get to feast. And with every loaf of bread, she took it while the band was practicing. She put it over her head and she started dancing. We get to feast today. We get to feast today. We get to feast today. That's what we're talking about. That's what prisoners do when that word is written across their papers. We get to feast today. We get to feast today. So we're going to have the opportunity because to tell us that is written all across our lives. So here's what I'd like to do. We're going we're gonna to ask our communion servers and the band to come forward now. And we're going to actually respond in that way as people with papers that say to tell us die. All right? And so we're going to respond in this way. And so if, if you're new with us, one of the things that we do is we take communion. And we not only think it's center court, quite literally in this gym, but we think it's center court in the life and the message and the mission and the hope that Jesus offers to us. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to invite you to come forward and we're going to ask you to participate with us. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter where you're coming from, what your background is, what kind of week you've had, what kind of life you've had. If you desire to respond to a God to say thanks of Tetelestai written on your certificate of debt, you're welcome at this table. You're welcome at this table. If you're here to receive grace and mercy from Jesus, you're welcome here. So here's what I want to invite you to do. When you come up, whenever you want to come up, when we're singing, whenever you want to come up, take a loaf of bread. Don't rip off a little bit. We want you to take a loaf. Take a hunk. It's there for you to take. And want you to, I want you to take it and then take a piece off. And, and these people here are going to look at you and they're going to say, to tell us that. They're going to say, it's finished. You're paid in full. No more debt. You're a free man. You're a free woman. And so we're going to do that here in just a second. And, I, and the kids are actually going to come down. We're not going to have an intermission. The kids are going to come pouring out here in, in just a few minutes. So parents of older children, they'll be brought to you. But parents with babies, uh, if they're in the baby room, after you take communion, uh, we want you to retrieve your children and then bring them back in here with us. Uh, but when you come to the table, uh, I want you, and you can even say it yourself, when you take a piece and when you look at these people in the eyes, maybe you want to tell them to tell us die. Remind me, to tell us die. Remind me, I need to remember it is finished. No more old sacrificial system because the chest cavity of God was opened up and a person walked out named Jesus who spread his arms and took his place for you. So let's stand and let's sing and I want to encourage you to respond as you so desire.